You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 305. Happiness is found when you stop comparing yourself to other people. Anonymous. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Enjoy this episode with guest host, Scott McMahon. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a past episode in which I interview the creator of Paranormal Activity, Orn Pelly. Halloween is around the corner, so I thought I'd polish this interview off and share it with you again. But what I love about this interview is how we're able to go step-by-step of what had to happen in order to make Paranormal Activity the success it became. You've probably heard the story how Oren made Paranormal Activity for $15,000 and then sold it to Paramount and how it became a massive hit. What you probably don't know is all the emotions that went into this roller coaster ride and so many things having to line up in order for it to become a global phenomenon. You know, sometimes luck plays a factor, and you're going to hear that in this episode. And I'm titling this episode, Imagine Making $193 Million Off Your Micro-Budget Film. Just let that sit with you for a moment. Yeah, it's the dream. I'm sure we've all had a dream scenario like that. Now you get to hear the blow-by-blow steps of what that actually feels like when Orrin shares his story with us. Now, I'm not sure if this will ever happen again, but who knows? It could happen to you. I mean, you, your film could be the next paranormal activity. Anything is possible. So sit back and enjoy this rebroadcast of my interview with Orrin Pelly here on the Film Trooper Podcast. Well, it's, it's been a very long time since we, you and I bumped into each other. Uh, yeah, quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think, honest, um, gosh, you know, I think really, honestly, last time we kind of just, I mean, we always would see each other at like the events or the parties, um, but we really only worked together briefly on like one of the basketball games at uh, Sony. And you were the only, I'm going to say this is really interesting because you were the only person uh, that would help us because I, I was working in the cinematics department and we we're having problems with the uh, video player, I think, for PlayStation 2 because it was fairly new. You know how Sony would have like their proprietary code on top of whatever code was normal? <laughs> but mm-hmm. they, uh, we were having a really difficult time trying to get, um, 
yeah, the movie player to work on PlayStation 2, and we were trying to figure out the specs that we had to create our, the pre-rendered movies for. And you were the only person, the only programmer that, that uh, was so kind enough and willing enough to like work out all the kinks and uh, made the major breakthrough for us. So um, I just want to say, hey, way back then, I just want to say thank you. <laughs> No problem, but to, to be honest, I don't even really remember that. I'm not even sure. Are you sure it was me and not maybe Amir? Well, I mean, it could have been. It could have been me. It was. We're talking probably like 15 to 20 years ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> Has it been that long? Good gosh! Yeah, I mean, right. it, it. I was. I was there in '96 when I started, and so this. You're right. We're, we're yeah, about 15 I, years, I think, almost. Yeah, yeah, I started in 97, and then I started with uh, NFL Extreme with Amir. So it, it probably was for one of those in either 97 or 98, so a long time ago. Oh, my God. Oh, I feel old now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting? Yeah, because both you and Amir are very uh, kind to to spend time helping us out, and that was really cool. And it's, and it's interesting that I, the reason I kind of brought this little story up is sort of just to – also get reacquainted but for this particular podcast that i do uh for film trooper which is the whole resource is designed to try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs in this new day and age you know of um of people just basically living that like the four-hour work week type thing and just trying to apply uh online entrepreneurship uh, marketing and business and try to give that information over to independent filmmakers um, as uh, as everything keeps changing so rapidly. But anyhow, what I like to do is take people through sort of the, the general hero's journey. And what you just gave or what we just shared there was um, what I call your save the cat moment, you know, the old Blake Snyder uh, screenwriting book. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that concept like your character has to have like a save the cat moment within like the first – five minutes or something so the audience can say, yes, I like this character or I can relate to this character and I will follow this character all the way through the end. Well, that was to me, that's that's me sharing your Save the Cat moment, which is just showing that during a time where nobody else was helping us, you did. So thank you. <laughs> no problem. So let me ask you, so um, another book, this I like to pair it up, the classic story book or story by Robert McKee. Um, he talks about the inciting incident. And do you remember like one movie when you were younger that made, that had an effect on you that doesn't have to be related to paranormal activity or a horror film. It could be something completely different, but do you have like a, a like a memory like that? I mean, there have been a lot of movies that had, uh, you know, a tremendous impact on me. Specifically related to paranormal activity, I would say as a kid, it was The Exorcist that, you know, totally traumatized me. And later on, Blair Witch Project, which we can talk about later when it comes to, you know, the mechanics of, of low budget. But there have been a lot of uh, movie events that are, you know, kind of ingrained in my movie memory as a kid, uh, like, you know, going to see Star Wars for the first time and, uh, E.T., Indiana Jones, you know, all those kind of movies that uh, defined uh, uh, our childhoods had a tremendous impact. But also, you know, I, I, w- I would like to watch uh, as soon as uh, 
video rental became available in Israel, which was more probably in the mid to late 80s, then I just watched massive quantities of movies then. And I, I believe that I got something, a little something out of every movie, whether good or bad. So it's kind of like sometimes just being exposed to the sheer volume of uh, of of movies and cinemas and different uh, styles of uh, directing and storytelling it sort of like you know gives you a mass amount of of knowledge uh, or you know sort of like second hand experience sort of uh, as you're watching a movie and you're trying to figure out like why would the director do such and such and such why would they cut here or there sort of kind of like in in programming terms reverse engineering something which is how I learned programming by looking at other people code and and you know then t- tweaking it and learning from it so that was in a way my approach to to filmmaking just watching uh, as many movies as i can and of course later when dvds became available i would watch you know the director commentaries and behind the scenes and and just try to uh, get into the head of the filmmaker and figure out you know why they did what they did yeah definitely hey so let me ask you what was the this is a really weird question but do you remember the the day that you your family got a VCR um, and what that was like to be able to rent movies in your own home. Was it an exciting event? It was more gradual than that. Uh, we got a VCR really early on. We were one of the first on our block. We we actually, when I was a kid, we won the lottery in Israel. Not the big prize of you know millions of dollars. But it was more like uh, five numbers out of six or something like that. So it was uh, probably, I'm guessing, in today's dollars, the equivalent of you know twenty or thirty thousand dollars, which was not life changing but very nice. So we we splurged on a few things, and one of them was a VCR. But we were ahead of the time. Back then, there were no, uh, you know, uh, video rental places in Israel, so we could use it to record shows of TV. But it wasn't until many years later that slowly, uh, you know, video rental places became available, and they would have very limited selection. And you know, over the years, it kind of grew. So it wasn't like one day we have a VCR and suddenly we have access to hundreds of movies. It was a multi-year process. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm just fascinated because you know. I grew up in uh, San Diego, actually. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So my experience with Suburbia and the first VCR and the camera, like the, the camera that was detached from the VCR, that was like our first gig. And, you know, obviously the first thing that we did was, you know, my younger brother and my, and my older brother, we would make a film of acting like we were punching each other. That was like our first film. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, I, that's, I, that's a good way to start. Oh, man, I got some good little footage of Adam when he's little. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but uh, in in our case, uh, I mean, I, I even before VCR, um, you know, before video rental, I would still go to the movies probably like every Friday. That would be like the thing that you know me and my friends would do almost every Friday. We would go and you know check out the latest uh, film. So even even before uh, rental, you know, it was still uh, you know a large part of my life. Very cool. Very cool. So, yeah, so we have your save the cat moment. We have your inciting incident. Let me ask you, so when you start making paranormal activity, I know that um, I'm not going to rehash sort of all the the details that you've gone over before because I'm going to actually point everybody to a lot of these past interviews that you've done so everybody can get the full story. I am actually interested. Did you – had you always thought that you wanted to become a filmmaker 
when you started doing paranormal activity or was this something more like kind of like a shits and giggles like you know i don't know i kind of just want to make something it's, it was a little different. It was, um, as I said, you know, I, I always loved, uh, you know, movies, but growing up in Israel, uh, making film was not something that seemed like, you know, within my grasp. There was no real film making industry in Israel. And so I always imagined to be a filmmaker, you need to uh, go to film school and then, you know, spend many years there and work your way up uh, through the industry. And maybe then one day you're lucky and you'll be, be able to beg a studio to give you millions of dollars and you can make a film or maybe you need to have connections. So I didn't even entertain the, the thought of becoming uh, involved in filmmaking. I thought I would just be you know, a film fan. And uh, and then I got into programming and I was doing pretty well. So I had a comfortable, um, you know, living and I wasn't going to throw it all away to, to start, you know, being an intern in, you know, in, a, in the film industry. Then I saw the Blair Witch Project, which totally changed my, my concept uh, and my thought because, uh, you know, it's like, wow, anyone can just buy a video camera and run around and, and make a film. And then I started looking into other filmmakers that started the way that way, like, you know, Robert Rodriguez and, and Darren Arnofsky and Christopher Nolan. And all of these filmmakers started by making a no budget or, you know, like a $10,000 film. In most of the, these cases, the, their first film wasn't a huge hit, but it definitely opened the door for them to get to bigger and bigger films. So... After I saw the Blair Witch Project, uh, and I kind of realized there may be a, another way I can get into the industry through the back door uh, and, you know, through a shortcut, I said to myself, well, if I ever have an idea for a film and I think that I have the, the ability to make it, you know, sure, why not? So when I uh, made up the decision to, to make Paranormal Activity, I was thinking, first of all, who knows? Maybe it will become the next Blair Witch Project. And if that, that'll be the case, they'll change my life. I can quit my job that by then I really, really hated. And uh, <laughs> so I figured, you know, I, at, at least during the, the time that I'm uh, working on the movie, I'll have the hope that, that will keep me going, that maybe something will happen, that you know, they'll keep driving me. And if, you know, worst case scenario, the movie turns out horrible and I never sell it, then, you know what, then I made a shitty movie. That's still kind of cool. How many people can say they made a shitty movie? <laughs> and uh, I, fi I figured I'll, I'll allocate a budget of $10,000. And, you know, I can live with losing $10,000 for, you know, having a hobby, you know, for a year or two. A lot of people spend much more than that on hobbies that don't have any, you know, uh, prospects of generating any income. So I figured it's a $10,000 gamble. It ended up being 15000 because, you know, like many movies, it went over budget. But... Uh, uh, I figured, you know, for $10,000, either I kept myself busy for a year or two and made a movie, or who knows, if if the stars align and with some luck and timing and, you know, uh, if the movie turns out right, who knows, maybe maybe it will be a life-changing event. So it was a little bit of both. I, I kind of had to keep myself balanced and realistic that the odds are against me, but can't lose sight of, you know, the big dream. So you definitely there. You've always had this sort of artistic spirit then because most artists or filmmakers or anybody who has a need to express artistically, they're almost like cursed. Like, you know what I mean? They're always going to need to do something creative, expressive, no matter what. So you've, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that's what you've always had that itch. So like you, like you were calculating it, but you were also saying, you know what, I'm going to have to just do this anyway. 
That, that's a part of it. And I think part of it might have been uh, with where I was career-wise because uh, at the early stages of my uh, career, there's been a lot of room for, uh, when I'm talking about career, I'm talking about uh, programming. Right. There was a lot of room for creativity. There would be small, efficient teams. Uh, like, you know, like we mentioned before, the first uh, projects that I worked on uh, at Sony with Amir and NFL Extreme, and then the, there was another project that uh, ended up not being released. Uh, it was just me and Amir, and then later on with Omar. So we were a small team, and each one of us had a large share of responsibility, but also a large share of you know cr- creativity. And then in the later years at, at Sony, uh, you know, you are one of 20 to 30 programmers and your responsibility is very limited and you basically just like, you know, a code monkey and there just wasn't any real satisfaction in, in uh, doing what I was doing. So uh, in that sense, you're probably right that uh, making the films uh, satisfied a need that I had that I could not fulfill in my boring day job. It's interesting that you said that. I mean, our days at Sony when we first started, it was sort of like a mini startup. Um, mm-hmm. We were away from the main headquarters up in Foster City and being in San Diego. And I can attest as well, it was fun. I mean, I was being able to, I was just making videos and then working with the the cinematic group uh, at that point. But things just got big. Like by the time PlayStation 2 halfway through and, and by the... Um, the sort of the urgency and rush of PlayStation 3 um, kind of imploded the the company because it just got so big and corporate um, that it did become stifling for sure. Which is, this is what's interesting. I was over at the cinematic apartment across the way from you guys in the building across the street, and we had access to, like, all this amazing equipment. And all these people that I worked with would always talk about, like, oh, we got to make a movie, we got to make a movie. we got all this stuff, we got to make a movie. I think... I, I was laughing. I'm like, I, I have all this access and I don't have a story to tell. <laughs> and like, and then like, mm-hmm. I would, I would like write a bunch of scripts, but knowing production wise, I'm like, I just made a fucking hundred million dollar film. I go, I, I, like, it's, it was like this creative block of like, I have not been able to like come up with a story that I could just make like you did, which you did a great job of just reverse engineering and saying, you know, I can make this. I can take the 10,000, you know, invested into this project. Can I ask you what, like, ten thousand in general? What did that cover? Um, obviously, the you paid the actors, um, which is fantastic. Yeah, the, the actors uh, uh, didn't really get much. That wasn't a significant uh, part of the project of the the budget. Uh, most of it was uh, just equipment. Uh, the camera was, you know over $2,000. I bought uh, a state-of-the-art uh, editing PC and some software. I think the PC alone was over $3,000. And then all these accessories for the for the camera, that was still, you know, when, when high-def cameras use tapes. So I bought, I don't know, like 70 tapes or, or, or even more and extra batteries and lenses and, and uh, uh, microphone. So all that stuff Added up, and then there was a lot of little miscellaneous stuff. Like you know, when I did the casting auditions, I to pay a few hundred dollars here and there for the um, for the theater that that I would uh, uh, rent. So there was just uh, a lot of little things uh, here and there that added up. Uh, to be honest, I didn't really keep a very um, 
a meticulous budget. I didn't really keep track of many of the, the smaller uh, things. So when I said $10,000, it's an estimate. It wouldn't be way more or way less. Uh, I think my original estimate was about uh, 11000 And then after we did some more reshoots, it went up to uh, $15,000. So it would be in that area. Maybe it's sixteen, maybe it's thirteen. I'm not really sure, but uh, it's around there. That makes sense because at the time, I remember like um, when all the editing equipment came down uh, because we were using like Avid, we were using Media 100, we were using um, these you know twenty five to hundred thousand dollar machines over at the, the, the cinematic department, and then Final Cut came in, and then Sony Vegas came in after that, which is the software based that just plummeted the cost. The DV cameras came out of nowhere. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I remember just freaking out going, I can't believe you could actually buy all this gear for 10 grand, which is pretty much what you bought, what you paid for at that particular time in, uh, in the state of things. Um, so you finish, I'm going to just cross over like really quick, uh, gloss over the, the making of paranormal activity. Like I said, I'll point other people to other links that you interviews that you've done that give a little bit more detail. So you finish, Paranormal activity, like sort of your first cut. Who did you show it to? Who was like the first like friends and family that got a chance to see it? Well, the first people who saw a really, really rough assembly, which had like missing scenes and visual effects weren't completely done and audio mix, like just the rough throwing together of scenes to just show, yeah, we have somewhere in there, we have a movie uh, that was Amir and uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, Tony, who were part of the crew. So they were the first people who, who saw the, the first cut. And then shortly thereafter, after I, when it was a little bit more polished, but not much, I showed it to my next door neighbors, um, <laughs> who, uh, who, and not the whole family showed up, but it was uh, the father Tom and his son Brian, and his son was 17 at the time, and he's like uh, he's a wrestler right now. I mean, that was back then. Yeah. Now he's uh, a, a fighter pilot, so not like a wimpy guy. Um, he told me later that he had nightmares for days. So I'm like, hmm, maybe, maybe I'm onto something. That is so cool. You know what's so cool is uh, the knowing that Amir, uh, there working with you at Sony, was also sort of in on this. And I, I assume you kind of kept this under wraps. Because like, I don't think nobody knew at Sony this is just something private, right? Yeah, I didn't tell a single person. I mean, my, my neighbors didn't know, uh, uh, none of my friends, no one at Sony. The, really, the only people who knew were the people that were directly involved in the making of the film. I didn't tell a single person, hey, guess what? I'm going to make a film. It's going to be so cool. And the only other people that knew were my parents. And again, not because I wanted to tell them. I would have <laughs> kept them in the dark as well. But they came to visit me like a month before uh, uh, we were shooting. So there was no way for me to hide the fact that, you know, the house looks different and we're um, doing, you know, tests and, and dealing with all that kind of stuff. So I had no choice and I had to tell them. That's amazing. <laughs> I love it. So, okay, so we're going to fast forward. So you finish, the, the film gets polished, it gets finished, and you have a small group of close friends and, you know, neighbors and family. You, you've seen it and it kind of gives you, I'm assuming, what was that emotion like just getting like sort of that first pass of going, holy, did you get like a moment of like, holy shit, I just made something? 
it, it was more, um, again, I would say it was more gradual than that because at every point when I would show the movie, I started showing it to, as it got more polished, to larger groups of people. And at the beginning, they were just friends. And, uh, and, and also showed it to Katie and Mika. And all the feedback that I got was pretty positive. I, I would say probably Katie and Mika were the most critical. Uh, they, they were never happy with their own performances and always <laughs> would say, you know, That's we can normal. do better. And I'm, and I'm like, what are you talking about? This is great. So they were like very <laughs> self-critical. And then I would show it to friends and, you know, they would say, oh, this is great. This is really scary. And I would be like, are they really thinking that or they're just being polite? Right. So, so then I started holding, um, screenings uh, through a friend of mine, uh, Alex, and I asked him to invite his friends that don't know me, and we didn't say that I directed the movie. I, would, I, I, I just said, I'm one of the producers, so you know, I don't care if you like it or not, be honest. And I actually gave them questionnaires that they can fill anonymously. Uh, so there would be groups of you know, 10, 15, maybe 20 people who would watch the movie. And first of all, I would watch their honest reactions when there was like a scary moment, and I would see, you know, like a guy and a girl holding their hands really tight and getting totally into it and jumping with something scary happens, I know that something is working. If I see people just sitting there kind of bored and disengaged, I know, you know, this part of the movie has a problem. And then I would also listen to the feedback. And when the feedback stayed mostly positive, I kind of slowly, after every screening, started feeling more and more confident. But the I would say if, if you're looking for like one moment where I said to myself, holy shit, this <laughs> could be the real deal, then that would be at the Scream Fest screening when I watched the movie in an audience of, you know, 100 people and hearing them scream like, you know, and react in a way that I haven't seen people react there before and seeing, you know, the the reviews that came. There were just a few, a few reviews, but they were very encouraging. So from that point on, I'm like, okay, maybe this is the real deal and maybe I should get serious about, you know, uh, uh, releasing it, you know, theatrically. Okay. I'm going to back up just a little bit before we get to Scream Fest. So your friend Alex, was this like local San Diego theaters that you were just like, was it theaters or just like somebody's home? It's somebody's home. Okay. So you just did that and that was really cool. How cool was that for anybody who was part of that just hanging out? They were part of cinematic history saying, you know, I was there at the house when they showed that. Anyway, so you got some confidence. Um, just I don't want to just skip over how you got to Scream Fest because I understand from what I gathered, you did your homework. You said, I got to get um, sales agents, producers, reps. And did you just start cold mailing to uh, a directory of like agencies and sales agents and um or did you did you go that route first before you did a uh, sort of your own film festival submissions yes because i i realized that uh, you know i i kind of I, I know my strengths and weaknesses and i knew that i know nothing about the film industry and how it works so i started just you know reading on the, in the on the internet how to sell your movie and you know just trying to get information and what people were saying is that you know, if you're going to try to do it on your own, you're going to make a lot of irreversible mistakes. So you need someone to guide you through the shark infested waters of, of Hollywood. And you need a, a, a lawyer or producer's representative or an agency. I'm like, okay, sounds good to me. That's exactly what I'm, what I, I'm looking for. Someone experienced to guide me through this. 
So I tried contacting a few agencies and it's basically like, you know, you call them and they're like, uh, you, you get the main switchboard and I would be like, yeah, I'd like to talk to someone at your film sales department. They're like, hey, are you a client? I'm like, no. Were you referred here by a client? No. Well, then there's no one for you to talk to. Thank you. Bye. Oh my God. And um, then I tried uh, contacting a few. I saw, I, I found some article from Sundance or something about, you know, the top players in the indie uh, film sales world or something like that. So I just started contacting a few of them. And in a few cases, they were nice enough to return my emails and return my calls and actually said, yeah, sure, you know, send your uh, DVD, we'll check it out. In most cases, I never heard back from them. In one or two cases, uh, people said, yeah, that's that's an interesting little movie, but uh, we just think it'll be really hard to sell it, so we're not interested. So at that point, I'm like, okay, well, I got to figure out a different strategy. How long did this take? Was this over a couple of months? You know, this because it's not like... Was, you know, when you started to submit it, you know, this is, you still had a full-time job. So I'm assuming that you were just, you know, like you said, gradually piecemealing this out. Yeah, it was over a process of a few months, but I, I kind of fairly quickly got the idea that it's not going to be too easy. So I, I already, in parallel, started researching uh, festivals and, and started submitting to a few of them. But I figured, you know, I, I'll still prefer to have the... Because, you know, you can submit to a festival, and if you get accepted, you can still back out of it uh, later on. So I wanted to kind of... I didn't want to just sit around and do nothing while I'm waiting to the, the potential producers' reps to contact me. So uh, at, at the same time, I was contacting some festivals and doing a lot of research about which of the upcoming festivals could be the best fit and I would have the best odds of uh, getting getting accepted in. And so, so both were doing both things were happening at about the same time. I see. So the story goes that somehow somebody in the CAA mailroom. I don't. I forgot his name was uh, eager, ambitious, found your film and brought it to the Scream Fest, uh, or he was working at the Scream Fest um, festival. I, I don't know all the details of that, but um, what was like sort of that, that first main break after you were submitting everything? Yeah, so I, I submitted the film to many festivals, including the San Diego Film Festival, which I thought, you know, I'm def definitely going to get into that one here. I'm a local San Diego filmmaker, and the movie was shot in San Diego, and they want to promote local filmmakers. Nope. Oh, my so, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, and, and basically all the other festivals that I tried, I don't even remember which ones were they, maybe Mill Valley, and, uh, you know, not necessarily like the bigger ones. Maybe I tried Toronto and got rejected, uh, but... Uh, yeah, there was a guy uh, that was uh, working for ScreamFest. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And at the mailroom of CAA, his name is Kirill Baru. Weird name, but very cool guy. And he saw the movie at the Scream Fest when I submitted it, and he brought it to the attention of Rachel Belovsky, the, the head of Scream Fest, and at the same time to the attention of uh, agents at CAA. From what I understand, no one at CAA actually watched it until after the movie uh, won an award at uh, Scream Fest. But he was sort of like responsible uh, for both, you know, introducing the movie to CAA and to Scream Fest. So if, if it weren't for him, you know, who knows where, where I would be. 
So that was just like completely because you did submit it to Screamfest and he was just there. So that that was almost like. So when did, what kind of call did you get? Like an email or call or, or at the Screamfest after you won, like you won the award? Did did um, did a Carell come up to you? I don't even remember exactly. I, maybe maybe I met him because once the movie was uh, uh, selected into Screenfest, then I became uh, you know much more involved with them. In uh, you know as far as how to promote the the film, so I spent a lot of time dealing with them. I think I kind of think at that point he might have not been as involved with Screenfest. I think he might have been more involved in the screening process, and then he was more full time at CAA. So I don't remember exactly when it was, but at some point. Yeah, we met and and he told me that you know he saw the movie and he loved it and he uh, gave it to CAA and to and to uh, uh, Rachel. So, uh, but I, I, I honestly don't remember exactly when that was. Okay, so this is amazing. So you you're going through your emotions. You're working full time job. You're you're doing. Um, and I know, believe me, I know what the climate was like at Sony, where you're just like, I, I got to get out. But anyway, the uh, <laughs> so so you're. Uh, you're doing this and you're and you're submitting you're getting rejected you're like this is crazy cuz um it never wavered cuz you're obviously you're you're still paying the 50 40 dollar you know submission fees just hoping that something breaks um you get in at um Screamfest what was that feeling like when you got was that the first and only exception to a uh, festival that you got into uh yes uh, Screamfest was the first one and until we got some heat as a result of Screenfest, after that, when I signed with CIA, uh, then later on, uh, I think a few other festivals uh, uh, accepted us, uh, or maybe I'm wrong because. Then we got accepted a couple of months later to Slamdance. Mm-hmm. After it was announced that we're at Slamdance, then suddenly I'm flooded with requests from festivals all over the country and all over the world to, um, you know, be part of or to to submit to their festival. Or sometimes they would even say, "You don't need to submit; you're just in if you want to." <laughs> and, and at that point, I was thinking, hey, we're going to make a sell at Slamdance, so I don't need any more festivals. But, uh, uh, yeah, at that point, Screamfest was, was the first and only one that showed any interest. That's fascinating. Okay, so what was your emotions like when you got a call from CAA? I mean, because that's, sort of, that's sort of like a big piece of the puzzle here. So what 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 was going on? Or how, did, you got like, did you have like a little celebration with your girlfriend and friends at the time? Well, that was a weird experience. Uh, I remember the the exact. Uh, well, actually, I don't remember the exact date, but I think it was like October twenty second of two thousand seven or something like that. Oh, and wow. that was the that was the day that the the the, the last real big fires happened in, in San Diego. Oh, so, I remember. So the the so just to. Cook, put it in context the night before i come back from la after the movie won a you know on an honorary mention and katie won best actress and i'm making a lot of contacts and all these um, uh, you know distributors are giving me their business cards and people tell me this is going to be the next blair witch i'm on cloud nine i'm like holy crap this 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 is really happening the next morning at 6 a.m., I get a call from my neighbor. Uh, we're getting evacuated. There are fires. Get out of here. Oh, my and, God. And I only took one thing with me. I didn't take toothbrush, even though everything was already packed because I, I had, you know, my overnight bag for from L.A. the day before. Um, 
I only took one thing, my external hard drive that had a backup of all the footage. Oh my <laughs> God. <laughs> I, that's I like, so, that is crazy. So, yeah, and, and then I started thinking like, holy shit, I hope the house doesn't burn down because then if I want to do reshoots, that's going to be a big problem. <laughs> oh, my God. All these things are running through your head. I remember that those were gnarly fires. I remember us getting evacuated like four in the morning. Um, we we were living over in uh, Black Mountain near a Forest Ranch, and we had to get down to my brother's house in Encinitas, and then it's the, the smoke and stuff was just getting intense. So we made calls and actually jetted up to Marina um, Del Rey, where we had friends that that we stayed with for two, two, three days, like two days, I think. And then yeah, we're just, yeah. you know, it looked like the entire Southern California was just burning right to the coast. And we had no, you had no idea for two, three days, whether or not your house was up or not. Yeah. Yeah. So, so at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm beginning to get a flood of emails from different distributors who are telling me, Hey, please send us a screener. I'm like, wow, <laughs> an actual real distributor wants to see my movie and I'm, I can't burn a DVD because I don't, I'm not by my computer. I mean, I have all the footage for backup, but it's not set up to actually, you know, burn a copy. So I'm like getting really stressed. But anyway, that day, later on, I get a call from Martin Spencer at CAA. So I get a call, hi, uh, Martin Spencer from CAA, we'd like to talk to you. And at this point, I'm already like, okay, this is good news. If CAA is calling me, it's not to tell me, hey, we just wanted to call you to let you know your movie sucks. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm like playing it cool. And this, uh, you know, guy with a, you know, British uh, accent, like this, you know, very gentlemanly guy is asking me all this, is telling me, I saw your movie and, and it's awesome and it scared the shit out of me and telling me how <laughs> How, how how did you do this? And I tell him, uh, how did you do that? I'm, and I'm telling him, what was your budget? And I say, it was 15, like 15 million? And I'm like, no, 15,000. <laughs> and he's and he's, keeps asking me all these questions. And then he goes, there's like a long wait. And he's like, who are you? <laughs> like, where did you come from? <laughs> and and I laughed and, you know, I told him, you know, I'm, I'm just a video game programmer. I'm trying to do this on the side. And he's like, well, uh, look, why don't you come up to LA and, and let's meet? So uh, I think that weekend, uh, yeah, I think yeah, I couldn't, you couldn't really drive up. Yeah. Was, you know, it, uh, I think roads were closed and I was south of the fires, uh, uh, staying with Amir. So there wasn't really an easy way to go. No, I'm like, I'm kind of stuck in San Diego until the fires are done. So I, uh, we went to, uh, I went to see him uh, over the weekend after the whole fire situation was cleared. And he's like, yeah, would you like to sign up with CAA? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Which is, by the way, is, is uh, you know, I now have a, a lot of people asking me questions like, you know, how do I find an agent? How do I sign up with an agency? And from my experience, usually you don't find them. They find you. If, if yeah. you just like, cold call an agency, you're not going to find anyone to talk to. But when you make something, uh, you know, worthy, they'll they'll find you. Yeah, I mean, obviously. So... You're, you know, you're floored. If I'm guessing right, so the, the fires kind of took everything out of commission. You drive up. Um, now, so what I gather is that the agencies started to uh, s submit or represent you. So they, they were the became your uh, voice piece for all these distribution companies and pro uh, production companies. That's correct? Yes. Now, this is where it gets a, a little, you know, the whole process of, of paranormal activity had like so many ups and downs. So this is where I'm thinking like, 
you know, awesome. You know, this is the next logical step on the way to theatrical distribution. And we're not getting any offers for theatrical distribution. We're getting uh, decent offers for direct video and VOD for amounts that, you know, at the time would have been very nice for me. You know, it would be like, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Nothing to see that. But at that point, um, it's already kind of set in my mind that no, you know, this has to be theatrical distribution or nothing. So I keep rejecting these offers and CAA is telling me, listen, you know, it's great effort and, you know, we're going to get you nice directing jobs and you're going to be, you know, we're going to work on getting you an, a, a great career. Uh, this will be your business card that, that will open doors for you. But this kind of a movie doesn't really, um, you know, doesn't really work uh, for theatrical distribution. Once every 10 or 20 years, there's something like a Blair Witch Project, but, you know, the odds are against you. So take one of these direct-to-video deals and let's move on. And I'm just being stubborn and I keep saying, no, 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 and, and no. And then we get accepted into Slack. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So I'm thinking, well, maybe that, that, that's the missing piece. Maybe at Slamdance, uh, the real buyers will be there, the real studios, and we'll make a sell dance. So I'm saying definitely no deal until after we see what happens at Slamdance. My God. So let me ask you emotionally or just your conviction what was it that made you feel like no 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 uh, something about this tells me i can make it happen on a theatrical release because like i like you said if a lot of people in the position will be like hey i can't believe i just made this for me i'd be like oh, i just made this little film and you want to buy it for 200 400 000? okay done whatever you know <laughs> but something about it what was it that that held your conviction I mean, it was many things. It was like you know some of the the reviews that we got at Screenfest when people uh, when people would say you know this is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen, and and different reviewers uh, like Steve Barton, who's a local San Diego guy who runs the Dread Central, kept telling me this is going to be the next Blair Witch. Mark my words, that image of your bedroom is going to be in the cinematic lexicon of of history. Like you know he's like this is going to be theatrical. Don't budge, and and you know the thing the audience's reaction at the Screamfest screening. And then when I came back to Screamfest a week later for the award ceremony, a lot of people uh, that saw the movie a week earlier would come up to me and say, you know, I've had nightmares this entire week. No other movie affected me this way. And I'm like, are they just trying to kiss my ass for no reason? Because there's no real reason to kiss my ass. I mean, nobody. Or are they being sincere? But, you know, you hear it so many times, you start believing in it. And ultimately it was, I would never forgive myself if I took one of those deals for three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 and moved on and then found out later that some big studio that just never got the opportunity to see the film uh, before I made that deal would have said, hey, we would have loved to distribute this movie and make it the next Blair Witch. Too bad you already went to the DVD route, now it's too late. And if that happened, I would have never forgiven myself for, for not seeing the, this through. That is amazing uh, to have the foresight to, and maybe something deep down inside you and to just hold your ground as well as listening to your audience, which is what everybody's, you know, teaching in the 
any type of business startup space, which is like, you know, really, really listen to your audience and then, and, and, and move accordingly from that. So all this stuff happens. Um, did you submit to slam dance on your own or was that something that was submitted after you signed with CNA, CAA? Uh, I submitted it on my own. I submitted to Slamdance and Sundance and uh, probably a few others uh, right after or maybe even right before uh, Screamfest. I don't remember the exact timeline, but I believe I submitted it uh, um, uh, on my own. So if I'm if I dealing with the the timing correct, is that so? It gets accepted to Screamfest in Los Angeles uh, September October, and then. Um, you know, slam dance has got to make their decision well before January. So did you get notice like in November or something? Yes, it was probably around uh, November. So th- I'm guessing, um, do you think Screamfest had something to do with it or was it total coincidence? It, it might have. Um, if I remember correctly... Uh, I, I, I hope I'm not messing up the timeline, but I think that I submitted to Slamdance right after Screamfest, and because I, I kind of remember that when in, that when I submitted it to them, I included like a printed piece of paper with quotes from some of the reviews. So if that was the case, it probably was after Screamfest, okay. um, and and I think that the fact that there was some sort of a prior um you know like when you when you get one of 10,000 submissions and one of them has already won an award and already has great reviews maybe there's a higher likelihood that the screen, the the festival screeners will pay more attention to it right. so uh, uh, yeah, so I, I think it would probably was right after Screenfest. It's kind of funny because at this point you have like an agent, like like the top agency, and you're still doing all this stuff yourself, and you get in, and they're like, "Oh, hey, good job." <laughs> I mean, at the end of at the end of the day, you 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 have to do that. I mean. You, you can't count on anyone else. No, no one's going to care about you like like you. I mean, uh, when, before that was actually before uh, CAA. But you know, to promote uh, the movie for Screenfest, I actually cut a thirty second trailer and ran it on TV in you know on the uh, uh, Time Warner cable stations in LA. You know, come see the movie and you know put a little trailer uh, with the date. So just for that one screening, because I wanted to make sure that uh, people hear about it and that the theater is going to be full. And um, I stood on, you know, street corners in LA. I would drive up to LA with flyers that I designed and printed, and would run after people on the street. Do you like horror movies? Come check out this movie, and would give them little, you know, postcards uh, with the date and and you know, a little screenshot from the movie. So uh, at the end of the day, I mean, you can't, you know, you 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 need to delegate as much as you can but uh, you you know you you need to do uh, some of the work yourself cuz some things will not get done unless you do them now you did you have any help or were you running solo when you were driving up uh prior to screamfest uh, happening uh, I was doing that on my own. Okay. And by the way, genius idea buying local ads because they're not that expensive I think at the time. Um no, it cost me I think about a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars to run like sixty spots. You know what? Amazing. Just amazing and uh well earned. So you get all this stuff going and you had your meeting. Um now I'm guessing um 
you're still working full time. Were you just like taking personal days as you were driving up from San Diego to Los Angeles? Yep, as I'm sure you know, we we <laughs> used to get like a lot of time off and oh never, God, use, yeah. never have a chance to use any of it. Yeah. So taking a few days here and there was no big deal. And I didn't really take a lot of time off for vacations. So, uh, you know, I, I was still probably maxed out on my, my PTO times. Right, right. God, I remember that. Uh, so, okay, so this is all happening. So you get into slam dance. Um, what was your strategy plan, or did you have a team at this particular time? Did CAA help you develop a team of some sort um, to, like, what was the marketing strategy, the promotional strategy to take full advantage of the slam dance opportunity? So by then there was a, a, a guy specifically, I had, you know, my agent that was kind of like my agent for my career, for me personally. And there was another agent that was kind of the sales agent for the movie. So it was his responsibility to sell the, the to try to sell the film. At that point, I also hooked up with two producers that uh, had access to kind of like the higher level people than the the VP of acquisitions that could get directly to the you know presidents of studios and and you know directly get the DVD to the hands of Harvey Weinstein and those kind of people was this so, Jason and Steven uh, so at that point I was confident that you know at least one person, I don't need a bidding war, I just need one person to see the movie and recognize the potential and, you know, like you always hear the stories about people who go to Sundance and sell the movie for a million bucks and the movie gets out there and becomes a hit. So that's what, you know, I was convinced was going to happen. Wow, that's amazing. Now, the producers that you had, uh, was this, uh, at this particular time, was this Jason Blum and Steven, oh God, I'm blanking on his last name. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, those were the guys. So they had come in at the pretty much the same time CA came up in, is that correct, around the same time? No, a little bit later. Um, my agent would send the DVD because they didn't really believe at that time that it's worth uh, spending too much effort trying to get theatrical distribution for it. They said, hey, you know, we tried, we got rejected by the studio, so let's uh, get one of those VOD deals or DVD deals and try to get you your next gig. So they sent out the DVD of uh, Paranormal Activity as a, as a directing sample to producer to say, hey, there's this new kid in town, check out his movie, and if you have another project that you think he might be a good candidate to direct, then, you know, keep him in mind. So when it got to Steven and Jason, they they loved the movie. They saw the potential. And then I met them and decided they wanted to come on board to help sell the film. Awesome. So were they the only ones who contacted you? Yep. Now, at what point was it, was it like a, immediately you were like, I get you guys or they get you? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because um, I heard the story about how Jason, when he was working at, I think, Artisan at the time or something, he he missed the opportunity to be part of Blair Witch, and he never wanted to miss, uh, miss that opportunity again. Uh, or that's the sort of the legend that's out there. Yeah, he was working for for uh, for Harvey Weinstein at the time. Okay, so so he's so now he's on his own and he's working with Steven. He's got those old connections. They come on board. Jason sees what you have, and you guys are lining up because they're like, you both see the potential of this being the next Blair Witch. And so now you're at Slam Dance, and he's able to 
you know, reach out to um, his his connections and, like you said, get above the VP of acquisitions and go from there. So, um, did they help develop a strategy of how you were going to tackle Slam Dance? Well, the first strategy was that we're going to uh, re- uh, we're going to tweak the movie a little bit, get it a little leaner, cut I don't know seven eight minutes from it, and then we can reintroduce it even before Slam Dance and tell you know. Tell all the studios in town, uh, we have a new version. We know that you saw Paranormal Activity. Now we have a new, better, leaner, scarier version of Paranormal Activity. Come check it out. So around Christmas, I think it was, a CAA organized a couple of screenings. And we invited a lot of uh, the upper level, maybe not necessarily the studio heads, some of them, but the upper level executives uh, to watch uh, the new version of the film. And some didn't show up, some did show up, but uh, there were there were no sales. So we're like, okay, well that was a good try. Let's let's you know wait for Slam Dance, and then we'll really go for the for the the top dogs at each studio. I see. So then, you, so um, the, was the Paramount deal, uh, DreamWorks deal, like um, almost after Slam Dance, uh, after the response and stuff? It was um, on the table before. This is kind of like how it played out. The very first time that Jason saw the film, after Stephen saw it first and told Jason, you got to check it out. So Jason organized a little movie night at his place and invited a a friend of his, Ashley Brooks, who was then working at uh, DreamWorks, just because she loves horror movies. Uh, DreamWorks doesn't really do acquisitions. They they only develop their own original material. So there wasn't, and, and he hasn't even seen the movie himself, so he wasn't trying to sell or anything, but it was just like, hey, come check out this weird little horror film because you like horror movies. So she saw the movie and she became obsessed with it and she gave a copy to her boss, Adam Goodman, who was the president of productions at DreamWorks. And she kept bugging him, you gotta see it, you gotta see it. And I think it took a while before he eventually saw it, probably a few weeks. But then when he saw it, he loved it. And then they were like, okay, so what do we do with it? We're not going to buy it and release it. And, you know, we don't do acquisitions in general. We're definitely not going to release this crappy little, you know, weird-looking home video thing. So they came up with a proposal of a, doing a remake with real, quote-unquote, actors and with a, a real budget, and they're going to let me direct it. And I said, I'm not interested. You know, I love this version of the movie. I don't want to do a new version. I don't need a bigger budget. I didn't feel I was constrained by the budget for this film. And I definitely don't want recognizable actors because it will take away from the whole authenticity of the found footage premise. So, and this version of the film works for whatever reason. You know, it kind of hits that magic formula. And if you do a remake, you don't know if it's going to work or not. So I'm like, no, this is this is it. This is the movie. If you like it, let's let's talk about releasing it but i don't want to do a new version so they kind of kept becoming more and more interested in the film in the remake idea and as we went to slam dance and got rejected for the third time by every studio in town really the only options we had was either taking one of those direct to dvd options or going with dreamworks and and doing the remake thing interesting so let me ask you. So you're there. You're you're holding strong in your line and your conviction. Uh, was Jason and Stephen behind you on your decision of like 
uh, in your vision of making sure that like let's do this or was everybody looking at you like are you crazy like you're this is your first film you're up here people are giving you these this is an offer this is um an opportunity uh that type of thing or um how how alone were you or how supportive were you on this decision of like let's just hold our let's hold hold our ground and try to get out that theatrical release as is well i think in Slamdance, everyone was kind of hopeful um, that, that something will happen, maybe me more than uh, everyone else. But I think we were all kind of hoping that, you know, we will be able to make a sale. And I think the rest of my team was less dismissive of the DreamWorks offer than I was. I just wouldn't even entertain the the thought of doing a remake. And everyone else was like, well, it's, you know, directing movie for Steven Spielberg is not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> uh, you know, some people wait a long time for that kind of an opportunity. But I'm like, uh, no, not not doing a remake. So I, I wasn't I wasn't even entertaining, entertaining the idea. I was just like rejecting it without even, you know, thinking about it. So we all said, okay, let's let's wait until Slam Dance and then then we'll regroup and and see you know what's the next move. And I'm like, cool, because you know I was certain we we're going to sell it at, at Slam Dance, so I didn't think that the DreamWorks uh, uh, offer will even become relevant. That's amazing. So then you have your you regroup after Slam Dance. Um, at what point did like Paramount come in, or because I know that DreamWorks and Paramount, like you said, um, they were. Paramount was handling distribution for DreamWorks, but then the economy was really at this point. This is uh, twenty uh, two thousand eight, right? So that's when it started to implode, just you know, worldwide the economy. Um, <clears throat> at what point did they get involved? Right, like right after Slam Dance. Well, basically, on on my airport ride uh, from this after I flew back from Salt Lake City to San Diego with no sale, uh, on the ride from from uh, the airport to my house, I had one of those reality check phone calls with my entire team, my attorney, my agents, my producers, and they're like, "Look, we tried three times to sell the movie. Three times, everyone in town passed on it. The only real option that we have is DreamWorks." And we know that you don't like the idea of remake, but it's really the best uh, deal that we have. And ultimately, there were a couple of things that convinced me to consider uh, the DreamWorks deal. Uh, one is that we really didn't have any any other uh, opportunity. And the, the the one other reason, by the way, that I didn't want to consider the DreamWorks deal at all is I didn't want to replace the actors because I thought that Katie and Mika did a fantastic job. They're they're the reason that the movie worked, and I thought it would be extraordinarily unfair for them to just get dismissed and replaced by, you know, other actors, and and it would be really unfair if if people didn't get to see, you know, what a great job they did. So, uh, the deal with DreamWorks was that on the if the movie gets done and gets made and then is released on a DVD. Part of the DVD release will include the original version with Katie and Mika. So I thought, you know, if if Katie and Mika are okay with that, I'll consider that. And the other thing was that before we uh, move forward on the remake, we can make the deal. But before we actually get started with pre-production, we... Had, we we make it a screening for DreamWorks and all the you know 
top executives of DreamWorks, everyone, basically except for, for Steven Spielberg, uh, will have to, to be there. And we thought that, you know, maybe if they, because, uh, you know, all the executives at DreamWorks, they've seen the movie, uh, you know, on a DVD player in their office or at home. Right. And we wanted them to see it with an audience. Uh, so I, even though I, we made the, the, the deal for the remake, I still haven't given up on the option. I haven't even really attended any meetings to talk with potential writers or anything like that. I'm still, I'm still on the the track of the theatrical release. is probably still going to happen because they're going to watch the 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 movie how it plays with a, a real audience, and then they're going to change their mind. So who 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 got that going? Like said, okay, let's we got some time here. Let's let's set up a screening for the executives. Uh, I'm I'm assuming it was in Los Angeles, and. How did you round up the kids or the the midnight you know college kids or something like that to be part of that uh, audience? It was part of the deal. So there was a lot of time. We weren't going to start shooting right away. So you start you know developing the movie and interview writers. So the deal was that before we sign a, a writer, we have to do the test screening. So I think it was in let's say Slam Dance was in the middle of January. I think the test screen was in March, probably either March or April. So a couple of months later, and it was just a regular test screening. I think uh, NRG. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, you know, did their standard recruitment and, you know, when, when people uh, stand outside of theaters and say, hey, would you like to come to a free movie screening? <laughs> okay. And yeah. it, so, it was, so it was exactly one of those. And I think it was in either Pasadena or Glendale. And uh, and yeah, and and that, that's when, when it all changed. Okay. So then they saw the reaction because it's the proof's in the pudding. There it is. The audience reacting. Um so this is March and stuff, and like, so I'm assuming again you are bouncing from San Diego to Los Angeles all the time, and I'm assuming that sometimes this was like last moment, like last minute, so you would have to arrange not being at work <laughs> once in a while. Which usually is not a problem. The the, the really tricky one was Slam Dance because that's in January. And that's when, uh, you know, we're in crunch mode for the MLB game. Right. Uh, so I was current on my task. I wasn't behind. And I told my my superiors there that I need some time off. And they're like, oh, is it, oh, is it like a medical emergency? Is it a family emergency? I'm like, no. They're like, well, is it, well, what, then what is it? I'm like, none of your business. Exactly. But I need some time off. <laughs> it's because I, I didn't want to lie to them and invent some sort of, you know, family medical emergency. But right. I didn't want to tell them. And I told them, look, I, I know what I need to do. And I know that I can get it done. And I'm ahead of schedule. And I'm only going to take a few days off. So don't give me a hard time. And they were really, really pissed. But they ended up giving me, you know, a few days off. Uh, but yeah, the rest of the time, it wasn't a problem to take, you know, a few days here and there. It's interesting. Yeah, I remember hearing this um, back then. I mean, I mean, and now you know, Amir's there still, right? So he he's the only one who knows. <laughs> I'm right. assuming, right? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, so you're, you're bouncing back and forth. Uh, you, you're you're managing your full time job. Uh, the pressures of game development, definitely. When we talk about crunch time, which is almost like like you know, 17 hour lockdown until like the game gets pushed out, um, which is insane about the video game industry and the video visual effects industry or anything. So now you're up there and it's, it's going, going well. Um, 
so I'm going to kind of fast forward a little bit to what point does the strategy of like let's release this at a few um, cities uh, in the midnight screening to um, to generate the buzz? Like, um, were you involved with those meetings, or how did the marketing department come into all that stuff? Uh, so we, we skipped. I didn't finish answering the previous question oh, about sorry. how Paramount, uh, how Paramount became involved. Uh, so we make a deal with DreamWorks to release the movie in the uh, fall of 2008, and we have a deal. I'm like, holy shit, this is it. We made it. I have a studio releasing my movie, and that's when DreamWorks and Paramount started having problems at a much, much higher level. I know some personality conflicts between Sumner Redstone and Jeffrey Katzenberg. I, I, I don't even know what it was, but whatever it was, they said, you know what, we're no longer going, going to be working together. We are no longer going to be distributing your movies. See ya. And then some people, some of the executives at uh, DreamWorks left uh, to work at Paramount, including Adam Goodman and Ashley Brooks, who were kind of like the, the champions for the movie. And there was sort of like a custody split. Uh, DreamWorks and Paramount, I'm, I'm imagining them sitting all in one big conference room with a list of you know all the movies that they have in development and saying, okay, you, we'll take this, you can have this one, we'll take this one, you can have this one, and they kind of divided the loot of you know which projects that they had about to be released or in development. And Adam and Ashley took Paranormal Activity with them to Paramount. So now we're basically starting again from score one because at Paramount, no one gives a crap about my you know little home video looking film. They're dealing with Mission Impossible and Transformers and Star Trek. You know who has time for my movie? So it was probably about a year of nothing happening. A I think year. Some, a year. Yeah, yeah. It was from uh, the summer of 2008 until the summer of. 2009, where I'm just sitting and wondering what's going to happen, and I keep bugging my agent at CAA, and they're like, well, there's going to be a meeting at Paramount in two weeks when they're going to talk about the your movie. I'm like, okay, okay, good, excellent. Two weeks. I can wait two weeks. Two weeks go by. I check with my agent. Well, well, what happened at the meeting? Oh, uh, the, the meeting got canceled. They're going to have it in two weeks. Okay, I can wait two more weeks. Two more weeks go by. Well, the meeting happened, and they talked about it, and they haven't reached any conclusion. They're going to talk about it again in a month. And just months after months and you know I'm just going insane yeah. at that time there was a lot of heat on the movie but now we're kind of stuck at Paramount I can't take it anywhere else so I'm just sitting there and the movie is, is you know held in limbo and you know there's like this sense of helplessness there's nothing I can do just sit and wait yeah I was curious so you went from a high like this is like March 2008 or something, you're with DreamWorks. You're going to get the distribution deal. Um, I'm sure you're celebrating with uh, friends and family. Just something like, you know, almost like out-of-a-body out of experience going, I can't believe this is actually happening. And then, like you said, a year, almost a year later, I mean, watching this thing sort of slowly erode when you hear about the split. And um, so... At what point? I mean, you're still working at uh, a Sony then, right? And you're still just, you know, doing this. You know, uh, you know I don't know where your headspace is or emotional space. How did you manage all that stuff within the year of limbo like that? 
I mean, it 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 sucked. It sucked big time because uh, you know it felt like you know something was dangled right in front of me, and now it's kind of yanked away, and I I couldn't lose faith that we've gone this far and and got this close, and it's not going to happen. So I knew it was going to happen, one way or another. But uh, it was it was pretty maddening to to have to you know wait for it, and uh, and you know definitely you know still working at Sony at the time was uh, becoming less and less. Exciting. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm, I'm sure you're 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 mentally you've already almost sort of checked out because like if something is dangled in front of you, I mean this is like this is the dream. This is like the ultimate dream of any filmmaker. Like what what happened to you um, and what you what's transpired is 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 what everybody young young and old filmmaker dreams of, and to hear this you know, more detailed and emotional ride of this uh, journey is just revealing to say, okay, so you have this month, uh, I'm sorry, this year. So what point did it, when did the light happen? When did something just break where you were able to, you know, finally know that, you know, maybe you got the, the check in the mail or something that happened? Well, well, there were several stages. The first one was uh, on my birthday in 2009, and I keep joking with my agent and my my producers, like, okay, today's my birthday. This will be a good time for for some good news. <laughs> and it, it was a Friday, and nothing happens. And at the very end of the day, like 6:30 or 7 something like that, I get forwarded an email from an article on Deadline with the subject "Happy Birthday," and the article is that a couple couple of the uh, higher-ups at Paramount just got fired, and Adam Goodman just got promoted from president of production to president of Paramount. Oh, my and, God. <laughs> and the next day, the next morning on Saturday, my agent forwards me an email that he got from Adam Goodman, and the email says two words, paranormal activity. I'm like, okay, th- this is all good. Now, now things can you know, pick up again. I am, I'm, I'm living through this with you right now. I mean, I can, I'm just hearing your stories, but I can imagine like your birthday and hearing that. Oh, anyway, keep going. This is fa- fabulous. So after that things happened really quickly, the, the next week we set up a, a test screening for um, the, the, you know, everyone at Paramount, their marketing department, the vice chairman. Uh, and again, the idea is that, you know, once everyone sees how the movie plays with an audience, they'll get on board. And uh, so a week or two later, we had the test screening. It went great, and uh, you know, and then Paramount is like, "Okay, awesome, we'll release it. We're not going to put any money be- behind it." So basically, uh, you have to figure out a way to release it for free. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the good news was that the, the Paramount didn't have any movie coming out that fall at all. I don't remember what it was, but from June until like November or something like that, they, they didn't have a single film on their slate. So the entire marketing department could f- focus just on paranormal activity and how to come up with, uh, you know, cheap and smart and creative ideas to get publicity for the film without actually spending any money. Uh, I think the, the original P&A budget was about 700K. So, which is like nothing for a release of a film. Usually it's, you know, more like 20 or 30 million. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. 
So uh, that's how they come up with the ideas of, you know, the demand it and the, the limited uh, uh, midnight screenings and all the kind of stuff where they could get a lot of free publicity and a lot of mileage out of, uh, you know, very little cash. And it wasn't until after the... Uh, films started, bec- you know, becoming successful in the, the screenings that they uh, agreed, okay, now we can pour, uh, you know, real resources into the the marketing. This is this is fat fascinating because this is talking, like you said, it's like almost stars and lining up. But like, what were those sort of meetings like when now you have almost like all of Paramount's uh, marketing? Um, brain power but no money power behind it so you just have this brain power creative power to go okay let's do in the same spirit of uh paranormal activity the movie which is let's made for you know nothing uh using the resources in front of you now the marketing has to be done the same way um how involved or how creative does like your producing partners jason blum and 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 forgive me again steven's last name how do you Schneider. Schneider, thank you. I wrote it, I scribbled it here, and I, I can't even read my own handwriting. So how involved was the, that group uh, with sort of like the marketing decisions or, or in, in contributions and things like that? I mean, I, I wish I could take more credit for, uh, you know, the marketing, but I would say that that was all uh, a Paramount, uh, specifically the Paramount Interactive uh, Marketing, uh, headed by Amy Powell at the time, and a lot of other great people there. But uh, it was really them. I mean, they, they kept us involved in what's going on, but demanded and the minute screenings and all the kind of stuff that came from them. And, you know, we might have had some ideas here and there to, to add, but uh, it it was really all them, uh, so I can't take any credit for it. But everything that they presented, we loved. We, we thought it made per- perfect sense to not make it feel. It, we, we felt like that this approach could actually work to our advantage. It's a very similar approach to what exactly worked for Blair Witch Project. Start small, and at that point, I had confidence that the word of mouth will, you know, help get the movie a, a lot of awareness and, and recognition. And to kind of keep a sense of, you know, the fans are discovering this film. It's not pushed on them by a big studio. Uh, it's just being discovered, uh, you know, by the ground roots level. So we, when Paramount told us, you know, this is what we're planning on doing, we're like, we love it. That's genius. You know, keep going. Amazing. So what, what are you doing during this time? I mean, you know, you're not like living paranormal activity 24-7. Obviously, you have a job. Were, were you already... At what point did they have you start working on other projects or, or you know, creatively? What what are you doing spending your time or, you know, on in the, in the year that this was on this roller coaster? Well, during the time I was uh, – uh, until, uh, until right about the time that uh, uh, we did a test screening, I was still working at Sony. And then I actually ended up getting fired right – uh, before the test screening, <laughs> I, I didn't want to go there, but I wanted to get there eventually. I, mean, I heard the story was like, okay, so yeah, Orn just kept taking personal days left and right, left and right, and, and he wouldn't tell anybody where he was going, but he just kept, you know, just not being there. And they were during crunch crunch time, and, and then and then somehow they found out exactly what he was doing. Like he had this movie, and he was doing all these festivals or screenings, and then they fired him, and then like the next day paranormal activity blows up and you're a Hollywood legend. And so and hearing that story from like my brother and some other people, I was just like amazing. I was just like, just because um, 
I was like let go from Sony fired um, in the beginning of 07 when like everybody was getting fired. <laughs> so anyway, it was, I vicariously lived through you going, thank you. Thank you for doing, being able to succeed in that way. Oh, thanks. It, it it wasn't as 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 uh, as this, as you described it. Um, they found out about the movie in June. I'm sorry, in January, and I wasn't fired until June. To fire someone, you have to go through a process. First of all, they wanted me to finish, you know, uh, the release of MLB, so they weren't gonna, uh, you know, even mention the possibility of firing me when they still needed me. But uh, after we released the movie, then they put me on the PIP, the Performance Improvement. Plan, which is their way of you know get, getting you fired. So I knew I was I knew I was on the way out anyways. They gave me uh, six tasks to do in two months, and five of them were reasonable, and I got most of them done right, right away. Uh, the other one was totally unreasonable. Uh, there was uh, one programmer that spent several months trying to uh, implement that, and, and he failed. And there was, there was a team, the technology group, uh, several people there tried uh, to implement it over a course of a few months, and they couldn't do it. So they were trying to get me to do it, and I told them this is Unreasonable. It can't be done. No one's been able to do it. And by the way, now with the benefit of hindsight, uh, even five years after I've been, no, six years, however long it's been yeah. since I've been fired, no one has still implemented it. So it's obviously they, they just set me up to, to fail. So during the time I, I, took some time off. I still had probably 40 or 45 uh, vacation days accumulated. Uh, so it's not like I didn't have times off, but then they started playing games with me and didn't want to give me time off. I'm like, well, I'm going to take it off anyways. And then they fired me. Oh my gosh. So it, did, was, did you get a deal already in place from uh, your team? Like, I mean, did you have already, did they already give you like some cash in the bank or did you not see anything from Paranormal Activity until it was released or something? I don't want to get into details, but I was just curious for just kind of living again vicariously saying like I've got this full-time job I got to keep going until I know this deal is set in place or I, I didn't get anything from Paramount until after the movie was released theatrically and, and blew up but um, I don't remember the exact timeline I don't remember if it was while I was still at Sony I'm pretty sure it wasn't I'm sure it was uh, after I was already done with Sony but money started trickling in from the foreign sales deals that we did so there was a little bit coming in uh, before the movie was uh, released theatrically in the U.S. Okay, so how was it emotionally being fired? Was it like almost like a relief, like a re like okay, I'm free, so you can focus on the the movie, or was it still stressful? There wasn't much to focus on at that point. It was out of my hands. Um, you know, it was all up to Paramount, so there wasn't much for me to do. Um, but uh, to a certain point, it was a sense of, of relief. I, I mean, I knew they were going. I knew they were firing me one way or another. So it was like, okay, you know, I knew it was coming. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I just had the, you know, figured I'll have a long vacation until the movie gets out. <laughs> so again, like uh, during this time, where there's this discussions about other projects they wanted you to work on, like uh, that Jason and Steven wanted you to work on, or was it just all 100% paranormal activity? Well, let's let's for the, for this particular uh, interview, let's limit uh, the discussion on to paranormal activity. Oh yeah, cool sorry, you. sorry, I I didn't mean to get you into any other projects. I, not nothing specific, because I know that your um, policy about talking about stuff that you're working on, you don't get into, and I didn't mean to get into that. I was just mostly no I, I was mostly keenly aware, like. 
um, that there was projects, like that there was other stuff you did. And you don't have to tell me specifically. I was just curious, like, how, you know, how you deal with your time off between these, you know, waiting for that big release. Yeah, I, there, there was definitely discussions. And, you know, my, my agent would send me scripts every once in a while to read. So, uh, yeah, I, w- I would try to find ways to, to keep myself uh, occupied. Okay, okay, cool. That's all I needed to know. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> no problem. No so, problem. So, yeah, so then Paranormal Activity happens. I mean, it wasn't too much longer after being uh, let go at Sony that the thing blows up, right? I, I, I remember kind of trying to see the time frame here. Yeah, I think uh, the first screenings started in mid to late September, and it kind of blew up in October, from what I remember. Yeah, gosh, so it's October 09 or is it 10? 09. Okay, 09. So there it is, Christmas. So Halloween time, fall. And then um, you're still in San Diego, you're, you're San Diego base. Um, your experience living in San Diego and always driving to LA, did you always feel like you can decompress from the LA bubble? Because, you know, LA is just like this weird vortex of like, uh, like hype on a mach- like on the highest level. And then, you know, getting out of the city kind of mentally, you're able to like get a perspective. I, I don't know if you had that same experience or feeling. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I feel that way now. Now I spend most of my time in LA. And when I go down to San Diego, part of it is to kind of mentally check out and relax because San Diego is, is, even though it's only, you know, a hundred miles away, it could be, you know, a world away from, from Hollywood. It's a very different atmosphere. It's very mellow, very chill, uh, you know, very cool vibe to it as opposed to kind of the craziness of LA, which is both good and bad. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. At the time, though, I'm feeling like, okay, so now I'm pretty much transitioning from my old life in San Diego. And I needed to be in L.A. more to, you know, be involved with, even though, you know, it was out of my hands and Paramount was uh, uh, in charge of things. There would still be occasional reasons for me to come up to to L.A. for meetings, that kind of stuff. So it felt a a little... um, like, like a, a little bit of a handicap that every time I have to drive up and drive down and figure out where to stay. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, a lot of time I would stay at uh, Jason's uh, guest house, which, you know, saved money on hotel bills, but it was still a hassle. I didn't have like my own place. So uh, after a while, I ended up uh, renting a place in LA so I can just be there. And because otherwise I always felt like I'm out of the loop, yeah, you know, yeah. being in San Diego. Interesting. So, I'm going to kind of fast forward. So you see the stuff developing and, you know, and it's becoming a hit and it's, you're getting press. I'm assuming you're going to, you're getting calls and, uh, doing the interviews and, and all this stuff starts happening. Um, do you even have time to catch your breath of like when it's, when it's all just like all this heat comes on you? Not much. It was a pretty crazy period of time. And, you know, I'm doing publicity when the movie gets released and I'm getting flown around the world, which is both, you know, exhausting and and fun. So it was definitely a a crazy, insane uh, period of my life. And and how long did it last? Like, so we're talking about like October to... I would say probably like January. Anyhow, so we were talking about, so you've had this, this... 
your whirlwind of your life just got flipped flipped around with the success and seeing it for real that the the movie's out in the theaters and you're being whipped around to city and interviews and and all this type of stuff what was the support system like with your uh, friends and family just you know was um, was there like a moment of like just a private like oh my gosh you know this is it this is it it's happening it's happening and then all of a sudden then it's his work <laughs> No, it, it was all good. I mean, everyone was, you know, stoked for me and, and, you know, my parents are proud of me and, you know, it's all good and I, and I'm financially secured so I don't have to worry about working at Sony or anywhere else ever again. Uh, so I'm like, this is good. Awesome. I made it. You know, I, I won the lottery. You did. Hey, for the second time, you got your VCR yeah. <laughs> in the second time. Let me ask you, at what point, you know, I don't want the details, but just sort of the emotional ride when you... I don't know, maybe like a large sump of uh, uh, payout was given to you where you realize, oh, my gosh, like you said, that you ha now you're at this place where I don't have to work worry about working at Sony and doing crunch time anymore. I am a Hollywood director, and I have this chunk of change that my life has changed. Like, did Was there like a moment like that or a private moment, or did it happen gradually? Uh, again, I mean, it's gradually because I knew how much uh, I was going to make based on the performance of the movie in the box office. So every week that it does better and better, I'm thinking, you know, in my head, you know, cha-ching. And uh, then, you know, uh, later we actually get the check. So I, I knew how much money was, was going to be due. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it was definitely nice to actually have it in my hand and, and in my bank account. But I knew throughout the process that, um, you know, I, I knew exactly what I was going to get. Amazing. And then now that I, this is crazy. So now you had this moment and it's here and you are part you. You're part of Hollywood history. I mean, this is historic. And everything now for the last seven years will we'll reference back to, you know, Blair Witch, Paranormal Activity. And with the franchise, and um, I, I, I don't necessarily, you know, we have to get into all that stuff. I just, I'll try to wrap it up here because you you've taken us to this journey, which is something that I know myself and my audience would love to hear. And I thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, no problem. So just kind of wrap it up of like this is your hero's journey, you know. You you, you went from a kid of, in, in, from Israel, and then all the way, uh, you know, worked your way through in the video game world in in, in America, and then became a film director and a, a legendary one in that in that respect and a successful one. But even with all that that kind of stuff now, what is sort of like the one important thing that you realize just about life, like no matter like all this kind of stuff, like, is there like an advice they can give somebody no matter where they are in their, in their life of just, um, you know, if you were, you know, like some kid walking by, like to give them this one bit, bit of advice. Uh, I mean, I, I took a very specific route that, that worked for me. It may not work for every, everyone else. Um, there are definitely many other ways of, of doing well in the industry. Um, so I'm not saying that, you know, my advice is good for everyone, but I've always been kind of a do-it-yourself kind of guy. I, I've never really liked schools. Uh, I don't think uh, going to school is, uh, or at least for me, it's not an efficient way of learning things. I learn things much better uh, on my own or with friends at my own pace. And I believe in uh, doing things yourself. Uh, I, I don't know if you know the story of uh, 
uh, the, the first entrepreneurial thing that I've done, which was when I was 16, I quit high school and wrote a paint program for the Commodore Amiga and then got it sold in the U.S. and, and made, uh, you know, pretty nice money, you know, for, you know, a 16 year old in Israel. So I kind of already had that, uh, a confidence when I did paranormal activity that yeah it can be done because when I told you know everyone in uh, in Israel when I was 16 I'm quitting high school because I'm going to write uh, you know this piece of software uh, everyone was telling me that I'm crazy and who are you this 16 year old kid going to sit in your bedroom apartment uh, in your apartment bedroom and write a you know, software to compete with the big com- with the big companies in the U.S. and I'm like, yeah, why not? And everyone kept telling me that I'm crazy and I'm wasting my time and I'm throwing my life away, which is one of the reasons that when I did Paranormal Activity, I didn't tell anyone that I was doing it because I didn't need to hear anyone, everyone telling me that I'm crazy and who are you to you know film a movie? You've never filmed anything before, so what makes you think you'll be able to compete with the studios? So I figured it's better to just not tell anyone. But uh, that that has kind of worked for me. The idea of uh, you know you have an idea in your head, you figure out how to do it. What you don't know how to do, you either learn or delegate to someone who does. Um, there there was you know I tried to do almost everything in paranormal activity on my own with uh, Amir and and my girlfriend. But as an example, one thing that I couldn't figure out how to do was makeup. I tried to do it on my own because I wanted to do everything on my own. So I, I went online and I bought all these makeup kits and I tried to apply it on myself and I just couldn't get it done. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have to, you know, get a makeup artist. So I found a makeup artist and hired her for a day and she did a great job. So the point is you need to do, you need to know what you can do and what you can't do and kind of recognize your own uh, weakness and strengths. But at the end of the day, you need to, to really be stubborn and really have perseverance. And then it also takes a lot of luck and timing. If it weren't for, you know, all the different things that happened the right way with Kirill Baru watching the movie at Screenfest and giving it to CAA and Ashley Brooks being there, you know, during the screening at Jason's house and all the different, you know, things that had to happen at the right moment in time. It doesn't matter how great the movie would have been, it still wouldn't have happened. And sometimes even if all the things are, you know, falling in the right place, there might be another reason that, you know, Things can happen. So there's never any guarantee. And, you know, the best thing you can do is just keep trying and, you know, be really diligent about the way you do things. Make sure you're doing things as best as you can and hope for the best. But there's no real, you know, formula. I can only say, you know, this one uh, I I got lucky with. Yeah, it's but still well deserved. I had no idea that you were actually that it, it mentioned in your bio that you worked on like the Amiga Paint program, and I think actually my dad and I actually worked on that program years ago. But um, uh, but I had no idea that that that's the entrepreneurial spirit you've had since sixteen. That's that's fascinating. That actually shows quite a bit of character and makeup of why you know paranormal activity is such a success, and it is. A really fun, fun film. So, <laughs> congratulations on that, and um, thank you, thank job, you. job, well done. Um, I'm going to wrap it up just because I've taken up way too much of your time, and I just can't thank you enough. There's so many other questions I know, um, like you know, I didn't really get into like just what that meeting was like with Spielberg, and you know, when you first finally met him, you know, in person. <laughs> 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And um, whether or not he, you and he um, discussed about uh, anything about your um, your experience um, living in Israel or not, just because I know how involved he is with um, um, uh, his Jewish faith and so on, and, and the and the the plight of Israel. So I was curious about that kind of stuff too. And then I know that I have fans that would want to know just like kind of what your thoughts are about the future of the industry, especially with Spielberg and Lucas coming out talking a couple months ago about the implosion of the industry. Um, but it sounds to me being that how you're in ingrained with an entrepreneurial spirit, no matter what happens, uh, you will figure it out. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll answer real fast about, about Spielberg just because, uh, it, it was a pretty surreal experience. Uh, I would probably like the, the first really surreal experience was uh, if we rewind back to the test screening that DreamWorks did when we were still talking about the remake. So after the test screening, uh, Adam Goodman and Stacy Snyder, who was the chairman of DreamWorks, uh, you know, we were at the lobby hanging out and they were saying, yes, you know, we'll release this movie. Uh, forget about the remake. We just need to get the okay from Spielberg because you know, any movie that gets released by DreamWorks, he needs to personally okay. So I'm like, oh shit, okay. Um, you know, back, back to sitting and waiting. And a couple of days later, I get a call directly from Adam Goodman, which is already very unusual. Usually I would talk, you know, uh, uh, to everyone through my agent or through my producers. I would never get calls from any executives, much less the head of DreamWorks. And he's, uh, so I'm already kind of nervous on the call. And he's like, well, Oren, uh, I wanted to let you know that we love the movie. And uh, as you know, we wanted to have uh, uh, the okay from Spielberg. So he started watching the movie last night and he stopped halfway through. And like, and my heart sinks. And then he continues after a deliberate pause because he got too scared. And he finished watching the movie today and he loved it and we want to release it. So that was like the first surreal, really surreal moment that I'm like, Oh my God, Steven Spielberg watched my movie. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of like in a state of shock, shock for a few hours after that and immediately called Katie and Mika and, you know, everyone else to tell them. So, uh, uh, and then later when I met him, which was while Paranormal Activity was in release, uh, he couldn't have been nicer. He was just like this sweet, nice guy that loves movies. And we talked about movies, you know, we talked about, uh, Paranormal Activity, and we talked about his movies, and we did actually spend a lot of time talking about uh, Israel and politics, and we're just having a friendly conversation, and every once in a while, I need to like pinch myself, like, holy shit, I'm talking to Steven Spielberg, because, you know, he was like so friendly that uh, we're just having, you know, a nice flowing conversation about a whole bunch of stuff, so it was definitely a, a great meeting. Good God. How long was the meeting? Like an hour? Or uh, More, probably more like an hour and a half to two. Uh, over lunch. Good for you. Oh, I can't. I'm just. I just want to scream. Go, Oren. Congratulations. It's. <laughs> it's, it's. It's been a pleasure having an opportunity to work with you so many years ago, and you showing us kindness and uh, support and just enthusiasm for what we wanted to try to do, and then to see your story develop is inspirational. It's it's it was like when I heard about it when I was following it and you know I know that my younger brother's uh, was closer to you so he was just filming in these things I'm just and it was just so I don't know it's just it's it's 
it's an uplifting. So um, all the success is due to you and, and keep going. And maybe if I'll get another opportunity to do like a follow-up interview as, you know, maybe another project comes up or something. But I can't thank you enough for your time today and just really kind of – I honestly, I'm a fan of all these types of interviews, but I never hear anybody get into the nitty gritty like this, which is why I wanted to kind of go through it kind of step by step and get into the emotion stuff because you never hear about it. You always hear like the gloss over, like, like your, your gloss over, like, oh, you know, he, he worked on this Amiga program and then he, then he made this little film and then he got this, this distribution deal and then there they got this huge franchise. Like that's kind of like the, the gist of it, but like hearing what you had to go through and the emotional ride of it, um, it's just impressive. Anyway, uh, maybe in a few years I can give you even more, you know, juicy details. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do. That, that, is, that, is still, that are, are, you know, still uh, can't talk about. But yeah, I'm definitely glad to help. Like I said, you know, I, I, my experience at Sony, especially the last series, was very miserable. There were so many douchey people there. You know, like when I watched shows like uh, Office Space or Silicon Valley, the, you know, the new one from Mike Judge or yes. The Office, they were like. So many nasty characters that I recognize from, you know, my own life, and I definitely remember, you know, you and you and your brother being uh, uh, the good guys. So very happy to help. Oh, thank you so much. And I agree. Like, it's weird in a corporate world because when it gets stinky and 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 illness, like it's weird. Like, just true colors of everybody sort of just reveals themselves, and it's you can you can feel the stench, and it's it's a terrible place to go into when you know sort of like that death of like eventually somebody or everybody or half the people are getting let go, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, but hey, well, thank you so much. Have a great Friday and a great um, you know just weekend. And I um, I'll, I'll I'll ping you when this is up, and I'll, I'll just I'll clean it up a little bit, but. Thank you. No problem. Have a good weekend. Okay. Thanks, Warren. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to thank Scott so much for doing such a great job on this episode. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 305. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 